Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about the family comedy cult classic, Chris Columbus's Mrs. Doubtfire. Now, the plot of the movie, after a bitter divorce, actor Daniel Hillard hatches an elaborate plan to disguise himself as a female housekeeper to spend time with his three children who are in sole legal custody of his ex-wife. A childhood favorite of both of ours. And as I was preparing for the podcast, I was surprised to discover that this was actually based on a 1987 novel by Anne Fine. Alias Madame Doubtfire, so a slight adjustment with the title when they adapted it for the feature film. And director Chris Columbus signed on to the film. Uh, He had done Adventures in Babysitting, another childhood favorite of ours, and Home Alone 1 and 2 uh, preceding uh, him agreeing to do this film. This is more in the vein of, I think, of uh, Adventures in Babysitting in the sense that it's uh, it's kind of knocked around as a family-friendly movie, but it's PG-13. So we'll we'll get into some of those elements later, but I do want to briefly mention some of the differences between the book and the movie, of course, there's always those changes made as it is adapted in the screenplay. But the biggest difference, uh, surprisingly, it actually stayed pretty close. Uh, there were some, I guess, differences um, as far as the characters were a little more self-interest driven in the novel. But the biggest difference is that the two older children knew it was the dad immediately in the book. And were you know only the mom and the youngest child, Natalie, were the ones that were fooled. Whereas in the movie, they're all fooled initially, and then the two oldest kids discover, which I think plays better actually. Well, in that scene where the son discovers him standing up peeing, <laughs> plays for a good comedic moment. Uh, and also with Robin Williams, you want to believe he's good enough at doing it that he could fool uh, everybody in the family. So it, it does play better for the film, right? It's less about the comedic moment, more about you see Daniel Hillard or Robin Williams, of course, uh, as Mm -hmm. being really good at what he's doing. Yeah. And Chris Columbus had a hand in a lot of those changes, no doubt, when he decided to direct, has had quite an illustrious career, not only preceding this film, but after it, he'd go on to do the Harry Potter films, a couple of those, uh, Nine Months, which also had Robin Williams and Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams. So he ended up collaborating with Robin Williams on three different movies. And we, we see that a lot with directors. They, especially someone who we just talked about, Quentin Tarantino, they have their kind of group of actors and they will keep going back to that pool uh, for the movies they continue to do. So once you kind of, you get in that, that inner circle, it, they come back to you. And I, this was the case with Columbus and Williams. When you have a good working experience and more importantly, when the movie's successful, you want to go back to that well again and again and see uh, if, if, if you can strike gold or strike lightning again with another hit film. Got to give Chris Columbus a lot of credit with his approach to Robin Williams. We, we in another episode, talked about Robin Williams and how he has a, a tendency to improv during takes. Uh, Chris Columbus anticipated this and had two or three cameras on Robin Williams at all times uh, so he could capture his improvisation and give Robin the full range he needed uh, to do what he wanted to do, you know, give him a box to go crazy in. Uh, he would do each scene scripted for two or three takes and then he would just cut Robin Williams loose right and so I believe I read that 
he would do on average, Williams would do anywhere from 15 to 22 takes. And those were probably just general roundabout numbers they're throwing out there. But he would really, really want to get into the scene, absorb the material and feel like he was delivering at the level that he wanted to. So no doubt a similar situation to uh, the genie from Aladdin, mm-hmm. where they had just hours and hours and hours of improvisation from Robin Williams. Enough to One where it the, disqualified it, the script from being nominated for an Oscar, if you recall, we discussing because he improvised uh, yeah, so that's much. that's right. That's right. They kept a lot of the improv. Um, what I thought was funny is the opening scene of the film. He is he is overdubbing an animated short, uh, and he gets stopped because he is improving a line, and it's something that Robin Williams is known for and brings to every single one of the movies he does. But he was getting in trouble for it as Daniel Hillard in this film. So a little. Uh, kind of dichotomy and, and that there. moment says a lot about Daniel Hillard right in the first scene of the film because the reason he improvises is he doesn't agree with the message it's giving to children so that tells us where his heart is and that it's in the right place and a loving place uh, right when the movie starts right in the opening scene and it seems obvious like oh who would but you know this is the 90s of course you still had smoking and non-smoking in a lot of restaurants and it was just I guess more accepted and then it even sells it more about he tries to look at the technicians for support and they're all in the booth smoking too, you know, so (laughs) it does sell it a little better. Yeah. Can't talk about the movie without mentioning Howard Shore, the composer. He composed, orchestrated, and conducted the original music for this film, a classic family score, very much in that uh, Hollywood 90s uh, family classic music. Uh, It's very similar to Home Alone almost. It it has that same... um, a vibe, if you will. Well, John Williams does Home Alone, but I, I know what you're saying as far as the, the 90s Yeah, vibe. the music, yeah. E- just e- that, even, yeah. Yeah, even Shore, though, himself has his certain feel to it. There are certain times in the movie, uh, there, there's one part where you're watching it and it almost reminds you of Shawshank Redemption, which he did. Like, he has his own specific yeah. style. He just kind of family does a family-friendly version of it for this film. Well, he, yeah, his talent is wide-ranging. He's won three Oscars uh, before this movie. He did The Fly, Big, Silence of the Lambs. Can't get much different type of movies uh, than that. And then after this, he went on to do Seven, Lord of the Rings, Gangs of New York, Avatar, Departed. Worked with Scorsese, it looks like, quite a bit. So he's done a wide range of films. He doesn't have one particular genre he's focused in, but he really nailed it and captured it with the score of this, having that family heartwarming uh, music that really uh, elevates the, the scene. Or, the, excuse me, elevates the scenes. A couple little bits of trivia about the production of the film. The house that it is famously shot at in San Francisco, 2640 Steiner Street, the address they give in the film is the real address of the house. So, of course, it becomes a tourist attraction. And probably makes it difficult to sell because it always has people in high traffic in front of it. It devalues the property. In in some ways, it's a nuisance to the neighbors. Uh, I believe Full House, also located in San Francisco, the house they use for that television show, uh, dealt with some similar uh, issues. One that comes to mind for me is Breaking Bad, and I think it's Albuquerque. Uh, Originally, the homeowner's, they you know just kept the house normal, but because of the high volume of tourism, they now have like a, a high security fence around the perimeter of the home. There's cameras everywhere. It's like it's changed a lot because of all the traffic they were getting. 
Last thing I'll mention discussing the making of the movie is the makeup team and the job they did in this film. Same team that did Danny DeVito as the Penguin in Batman Returns and Jack Nicholson as the Joker in Batman. Uh, they ended up winning the Oscar for this film. Uh, Greg Canham, V. Neal, and Yolanda Tosing. I was surprised to read that they did win an Oscar for this film. Not to say it's not good. It's clearly a very great job portraying Robin Williams in that manner. It took four hours to apply the makeup for each setting each day that he had to uh, be Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, interesting, the ma- the mask that you see in the film is not the actual makeup. That It was just a prop. The real makeup that he wore was like eight different pieces that had a yeah, it was a jigsaw together. yeah a puzzle that they would put on piece by piece to cover his face and do you know each uh, different part the ears the the eyebrows the lips um they they wanted to shoot him for 10 hours a day though so they really tried to get that makeup time down and over the course of production on a good day they got it down to about three three and a half hours uh williams though he did uh, take a page out of a of an other actor's book, which I'll get to in a moment where he went in his full Mrs. Doubtfire getup. He would go around San Francisco and like go shopping and do stuff. Uh, In an interview, he famously mentioned that he went to a sex shop one time as Mrs. Doubtfire got a few, uh, got a few items. Uh, The other actor he took that from was Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie did the same thing. Wanted to go around in the full getup to kind of see what social interactions would come about. Mm. Uh, and he had developed a close relationship with Dustin Hoffman when making Hook just a couple years earlier. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Starting with producer star of the film himself, Robin Williams is Daniel Hillard, Mrs. Euphigena Doubtfire. <laughs> this is peak Robin Williams. Coming off Aladdin, I mean, he had done Dead Poets Society, been nominated for three Oscars before this film, Good Morning in uh, Vietnam, you know, as we just mentioned, Hook, Fisher King. But your 90s Robin Williams is Robin Williams operating at the uh, height of his movie star powers. Yeah, this this movie would it would be very different with any other actor in it. And, and, and so much so that early on in the film, anytime there was a scene without Robin Williams, I would just be waiting for him to come back on, on onto the scene with. I mean, he just shines so brightly in this film that any scene without him is just, it just lessens severely going back to his improvisation. Columbus, uh, the director said uh, that there was so much improvisation that there could exist out there. PG PG 13 rated R and even NC 17 versions of this film because of how much he improvised. (laughs) Not surprising. Sally Field is Miranda Hiller, two-time Oscar winner before this film, Smokey the Bandit, Steel Magnolias, of course would go on to do Forrest Gump, Lincoln, and prestigious television. I love her performance in this movie. It's it's emotionally grounded performance, realistic and, and connected to the circumstances and the relationships of her children and, and her uh, soon-to-be ex-husband. Yeah, she was a very difficult recasting. When we get to that a little bit later, I, ha- I had some uh, some trouble with that one. Um, but she just, she sells the, the soul of the, I guess the, not only the soul of the family that, uh, and her children and whatnot, but as far as the, the tension that goes back and forth, it is all driven by her because the emotion of the back and forth only comes from her. The, of course, the kids want to be with Daniel, uh, 
you know, Robin Williams' character wants to be with the kids, but her back and forth is kind of what drives the emotion of the movie. And that's where the film also, and we'll talk about the messages and themes later, but the message of this of the film dealing with family and divorce, you need a realistic character to kind of keep it grounded. And she is that uh, moral uh, compass of the film in terms of keeping it realistic and it not getting too kind of out of there. And that's also why at the end of the movie, I love that they don't end up getting back together because that's life. They end up moving on and they make the best of the situation. Right. If you didn't, you'd be like, oh, I think it would just set a bad precedent assuming that, you know, parents get back together. Well, most oftentimes they don't. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting side note, the author, Anne Fine, her original choice for Daniel Hillard uh, was Warren Beatty uh, because he was such a womanizer that she thought would be interesting to kind of see him playing a woman instead. I don't know if the Stu storyline would have worked the same way or that dynamic because you can see his insecurity kind of coming through with the young, dashing, charming man in Pierce Brosnan's character. Oh, I know you. I, I agree. The the clearly the better choice. You're not going to uh, outcharm Warren Beatty. That's going to be hard to do. <laughs> right, right. And speaking of Pierce Brosnan, as Stu, Chris Columbus was a huge James Bond fan, and, and was really sad for him when he ended up missing out. If you recall, he was going to get the part in License to Kill, and ended up going to Timothy Dalton as James Bond. But he fulfilled his destiny just four years after this film came out with Goldeneye and played James Bond in four features. But Chris Columbus was somewhat surprised that he agreed to do such a small part in this movie. He considered him a phenomenally talented actor, and he was in Remington Steel, a very popular television show at the time. And a favorite of Chris Columbus's. And you know, Columbus was a huge Bond fan, so yeah, he was he was ecstatic uh, to, um, to to get him to, to to hear that he had won the part of James Bond, and then of course disappointed, like you mentioned, with the uh, Remington Steel uh, issue. Uh, couple of what ifs I'd like to go over real quickly for Hillard. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Allen was offered both the role of Mrs. Doubtfire and Stu uh, himself uh, and turned both of them down. Uh, you also have Bill Murray, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Tom Hanks, um, Alec Baldwin, Michael Keaton, Jim Carrey. I mean, the list goes on They really and swung on. for the fences and, and trying to find the right actor. Yeah, and even though that's a huge list of a caliber stars you can't imagine anyone else being better for the part than robin williams and even in recasting the film you can see there's only a handful of actors that can even pull this off so it couldn't be a truer statement said by you talking about the three kids in the film breakout star feature film debut from mara wilson as natalie hillard she would go mm -hmm. on to star in matilda if you remember that was a huge uh, hit of course yeah uh, big uh, Childhood favorite of mine, yeah. And she was five years old at the time they made the movie. It was, she was six years old when it came out, and she breaks your heart in this movie. She, she, you could see why she becomes a huge star, and I think her career probably benefited from this movie more than anyone else. From where they were, I mean, Sally Field was already very well established. Robin Williams was too. Right, yeah, yeah. so that I would say this her. This propelled that, her into the zeitgeist of stardom. Right, and, and you don't see much from her lately. I think she got is more into maybe writing and directing now. But yeah, she was a huge, huge childhood star. Just yeah. the, 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 f the fact that a five-year-old could act that well is crazy. Yeah, she was great. Uh, Matthew Lawrence asked Chris Hillard, one of the famous Lawrence brothers, his brother Joey Lawrence uh, of, of television fame. Uh, and Matthew Lawrence was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, so he was in a hit movie before this. And Lisa Jacob uh, as Lydia Hillard, she, was an she would go on to be an Independence Day. Oh, oh, that's right, yeah. Forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Honorable mentions of the cast, Robert Prowski as Mr. Lundy, 
77 credits, a great character actor in movies. Uh, he was also in Last Action Hero, one of our childhood favorites. Harvey uh, Fierston as Frank uh, plays his brother. Really an underrated, underappreciated performance. He crushes oh, and steals a couple yes. of the scenes that he is in. 56 credits, and he was also in Independence Day, if you remember. He played Jeff Goldblum's friend. Oh, that's right. Yes. Forgot about that. Man, that's a lot of good callbacks there. Yeah, and Anne Hanley as Mrs. Selner, the child uh, or social services supervisor. God, she's been in a bunch of stuff. Passed away in, uh, back in 2000, but she had 120 credits and was in Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey as well. So uh, just some of those uh, uh, great character actors uh, – you got to give a shout out to uh, when talking about the cast. Absolutely. And before we move on, got to anoint my uh, MVP, most valuable performance of Mrs. Doubtfire. And of course, it's a no brainer. It would be a, a fallacy to go with anyone else. And the only times I don't go with the, uh, the who would argue is the MVP is if there's an underappreciated performance that I feel like really deserves to have the spotlight shined on it is the case of our last episode in the Glorious Bastards. Brad Pitt just didn't get enough of credit. In this film, no one even comes close to Robin Williams' contributions in this movie. That's why he is the MVP of Mrs. Doubtfire, starting with the voice. And when you hear it, if you close your eyes, you can't even tell it's Robin Williams. I mean, it's almost got like this, uh, not this, this, uh, takes the deepness out of his voice. It's very high, but it also has like this Irish swing to it and, 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 and this old delicacy at the same time crushes uh, the voice, uh, which is so important to the character and helping sell it, because if he sounds too much like Robin Williams or sounds too much like himself, it doesn't work at all. It, it, the fact that he was willing to sit through four hours every day in makeups, you know, that, that is a task all in of itself, and I'm sure they don't include that I've been in some of that stuff before. PAX takes a long time to take off and wash out. Probably takes him an hour, hour and a half to get out of it at least. So dedicated to his craft, dedicated to the film, fully committed to the performance, and he deserves a lot, a lot of credit. And one of his greatest strengths is improving lines, as is the case with Aladdin. He did it, and when directors let him go free and crazy in the box, he time and time again has delivered brilliant material uh, in his performances. And that's the biggest thing is we don't know the depth of this contribution, and there's a reason he's I'm sure he's credited as a producer is how much he uh, put into the film and to the script just through sheer. Uh, creativity on his part that that we don't know the extent of that but that is uh, very much a, a part of what he, he added to it and he added a lot of layers a lot of nuance to the performance one of the elements that I really love that he delivers is the jealousy or control that is very realistic and truthful that doesn't make Robin Williams you know it's not a flattering light to show himself in he's willing to be vulnerable and be and do what's truthful, even if it's not going to make him look good. You know the moments where he'll sabotage Pierce Brosnan's uh, blooming, blossoming relationship with uh, Miranda Hillard, Sally Field's character. Uh, he'll say she's got crabs, or you know, or or, or 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 there's you know there's there's different instances where he'll exhibit control in in in, in a very uh, you can see his jealousy and insecurity coming through, and it's a handful of moments through the film that he does it, and he doesn't it doesn't come off great. And if it was a lesser actor, it would make him unlikable. But with Robin Williams, again, it just grounds the film uh, and that character. And we'll move on to the stats and accolades of Mrs. Doubtfire. Release date in the United States, November 24th, 1993, in 2,354 theaters. Clocking in at just over two hours, 125 minutes. On a budget of $25 million. Opening weekend grossed $20.4 million, number one in the country, almost recouping its budget right there when it was released. 
Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. That was only twenty five million. I figured. Well, I don't know what the salary Robin Williams was pulling back then, but I figured that that would have been a big chunk of it. But it just seems like. Yeah, it seems like it's a low a, button. It's a if you think about it, it's a feature that can be made for a relatively low scale because it doesn't have a whole lot of visual effects or any action set pieces. So you could, it's most probably a lot of its salary and location the salary, cost, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even the crew costs as well. Uh, we gross in the United States two hundred and nineteen point one million dollars, making up just under fifty percent of its take, with a worldwide gross of four hundred and forty one point two million. And it ranked number two at the box office for the year of 1993. Just behind Jurassic Park, uh, which was, of course, the, the, the big winner that year. Uh, and if you were to translate its dollars to today, that would be a $44.5 million opening weekend and a domestic take of $474.6 million, which, <sighs> considering inflation, that would actually surpass its worldwide gross uh, dollar value from 1993, back then when it was released just a blockbuster and when you consider the budget cost for the film a very high return on investment for 20th century fox who produced and distributed uh, the movie ran in theaters for 23 weekends scores of the movie imdb 7.0 rotten tomatoes 71 percent on 49 reviews meta score of 53 on 16 reviews and a cinema score of a so it got a pretty high cinema score yeah, I was surprised that the Rotten Tomatoes was so low, but if you look at like the audience score, it's like in the mid to high nineties. Like everyone loves this movie, but critics I think maybe just give it a little bit of a little too hard of a time. Yeah, Not well, that it was mixed at first. Uh, a lot of them compared it to some like it hot unfavorably, and some compared it to Tootsie. Uh, and felt like it was an inferior film to Tootsie, and I think uh, I love Mrs. Doubtfire, but that's probably a fair assessment. Uh, Roger Ebert himself even compared it to Tootsie, and he said any review has to compare it to Tootsie. That's that's a good point. Maybe it was just they felt like it was not an original trope, mm-hmm. uh, even, yeah, even though it was coming from the, an original source. Well, material. the premise wasn't original by any stretch. That's you know. Uh, been a handful of films uh, with that premise before. Ebert only gave it 2.5 stars out of four. Kind of surprised by the low score. Uh, he he thought he felt like it. He had a strong start, uh, but just a, as the film went on, it, it didn't really live up to what it could have been its full potential. He particularly cites the uh, restaurant scene, the climax of the film, where it should have really packed more of a punch than it ended up delivering. I'm going to say I have to agree with him. Yeah, you know, he's so. right, yeah. The, the the start of this film leading up to the um, uh, one of my favorite montages in the movie is probably the better stretch of, uh, of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Most definitely that, yeah, the first hour is the best, yeah. Yeah. Uh, awards, as we covered earlier, one Oscar nomination, one win for Best Makeup, another 10 wins and 10 nominations, won two Golden Globes, Again, surprised by the scattered uh, uh, degree of accolades. Uh, only one Oscar nomination for Best Makeup, but with Golden Globes nominated for Best Picture and one Best Picture Comedy uh, at the Golden Globes. And Robin Williams won Best Actor in a Comedy. So the film took some, some pretty prestigious uh, big-time awards. I think it's more Robin Williams elevating the material. I feel like this movie would have... We wouldn't even be talking about it now if it was made with another actor. It would just be... Uh, just kind of a another movie in the 90s. Mm. And it did get a BAFTA nod for Best Makeup, but did not win, which is uh, rather surprising. Other movies in 1993, we covered the number one movie of the year, Jurassic Park, and the Oscar winner Schindler's List, Spielberg's Year. 
Uh, Hocus Pocus, Last Action Hero, Groundhog Day, and Falling Down, some other movies of the year. TV shows of the year, uh, the Nielsen top TV shows, Roseanne, Seinfeld, Home Improvement, uh, Best Drama winner at the Emmys, Picket Fences, Best Comedy winner at the Emmys, Frasier, the Cheers spinoff. Songs of the year, number one, Billboard song, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. And the Grammy Best Song winner, Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen. You mentioned Home Improvement. I, I have to bring up that uh, this was movie was originally almost going to be a spinoff of Home Improvement, but the idea quickly fell apart. But I thought it was interesting that, that kind of, they try to tie the two together. That's when Tim Allen was involved, but uh, I digress. It was, uh, it was never meant to be, but that just shows the, the popularity of Home Improvement back in 1993. Like you said, it was one of the, the biggest shows that year. Uh, we, we watched that growing up, too. Uh, Prices of 1993, gas was $1.16 national average, and a movie ticket was only $4.14, which about everywhere you go now, it's what, 9 or 10 bucks? Ooh, at least, yeah. Yeah, it's almost doubled. Uh, Harley Davidson celebrated its 90th year, and the World Wide Web was born. Let's move on to our favorite scenes and lines from the film. Going to be a lot of Robin Williams talk uh, coming up through here. I mean, he just dominates so much of, of the movie. So uh, let's kick it off with our favorite scenes. What was your runner-up, Warren? Runner-up is the uh, phone hiring sabotage montage. Hello? Ah! Leela, get back in your cell. Don't make me get the hose. Hello? I am Job. Do you speak English? I am Job. I'm sorry, the position has been filled. Oh, what a nightmare. And this movie has a lot of great <laughs> montages. Surprised at how many montages there yeah. were. There's at least like fucking six. Yeah, I don't know if they're that many, but there's there, there's uh, more than a few. There's yeah. at least five, it feels like. Uh but it, I love that montage where he and it's a great opportunity for Robin Williams to showcase his ability to, to voice different characters. And boy, does he pull out all the stops in this montage. I, I've counted at least 12 or 13 different characters he does cut together real quick. And it leads to ultimately him being hired as Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, because he couldn't just call as her initially and get the job. He had to throw several bad apples out there first to say, hey, this is just going to elevate her. Cause he, and he even kind of says something to the effect uh, when, when he's calling as, as Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, but I, I did have that as, a, as an honorable mention. So great, great choice. Well, remember um, he, yeah, remember he changes the number on the ad when he's leaving with a pen in a really oh, yeah. swift way. And it made me think, would she have noticed the mistake when she's given it to the newspaper they would have verified the information it's almost felt like maybe she would have caught that mistake but that's that's a nitpick and you, it doesn't take you out of the movie it's by no means a plot hole it's actually pretty clever that his character does that but he has full control on every applicant that comes through so he gives her all those bad apples she hasn't had one promising candidate and then mrs doubtfire the perfect candidate just appears out of nowhere and she's busy you can tell like it makes sense that she would just make the quick decision with the first best candidate, particularly when she'd went through all those bad calls and bad initial interviews. No, yeah, I like that. And it's, uh, again, a testament to his ability to, to voice act that he could trick his, uh, well, then ex-wife, uh, who he had been married to for 15 years, into knowing that it wasn't him over the phone. I, I, I could never do that with my wife. But um, um, my runner-up um, was almost, that was a very close call out, but between that scene and the home visit with Mrs. Selner when she comes. Oh, my God. She, 
that's my winner. Ah, that's your winner. Yeah, okay. man. It's fucking great. <laughs> it's like I laughed out loud the hardest watching that scene because uh, for the first time you see him kind of managing the situation. And when she shows up unannounced and he's surprised, uh, the fact when he runs back in there, she's like, oh, I would love a cup of tea. And he's like, well, I'll go get her. And then he just takes off down the hallway. <laughs> and you can, when you start to see him take the robe off and actually put the, you're like, holy shit, he's really going to do that? Like, you almost can't believe he's willing to go to that extent to sell it. Miss Hillard? Yes, dear? I take sugar in my tea. Oh, your tea! And then everything plays out uh, with, you know, the cream dropping in the cup. And then uh, uh, because his mask fell out the window and then gets run over, which I just laughed uncontrollably that whole time. No! Stop! Stop! Oh, oh, no! Oh, shit! And then you have the kids laughing and everything, and he actually flashes them, and they're like, "Mom," you know, and they they yell for that, and uh, it adds another el- you know, another layer of comedy on top of that. But it also sets the stage or kind of foreshadows him having to do the back and forth that he would later do at the restaurant, uh, showing that you know it, it, it's something that he has had to juggle before, and you can see the next time. In the restaurant, he's a little bit better at it because yeah, he has. Yeah, he is. The, but the I shirt. think the scene at with Mrs. Selner is a better scene of him doing it than it is at the restaurant. Like it's a, a, oh, executed no, no, better by far. And you would almost expect the restaurant scene to be better because of how good this scene is. Well, I think you, what's missing is the tension because he's in control so much until he gets drunk and you know screws everything up at the restaurant. But he has he's having to think on the fly with Mrs. Selner because he's never done it before. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, that's why it's so compelling. Okay, here, here it goes. Exactly. And then I love it where he like, he doesn't know what to do because the mask falls off and he just has to put his face in the meringue or the cake or whatever it is. And then um, you uh, he pops up and then comes up with a story on the spot as the cream is dripping into the, the, the tea. And actually, that was not scripted. The, originally, the cream wasn't going to do that. But because of the hot stage lights um, from when they were shooting, that started to melt the cream, and Williams just thought of that on the spot and improv that. Oh, I'm sorry to frighten you, dear. I must look like a yeti in this getup. This is my nightly meringue mask, part of my beauty regimen. What it is is basically egg whites, creme fraiche, powdered sugar, vanilla, and a little touch of alum. There you go, dear. Oh, there you go. You've got your cream and your sugar now. It's a little cappuccino. One drop or two. Would you like another one? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Almost matched up, man. Almost. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. My winner, though, uh, was one of the aforementioned um, montages. The dude looks like a lady montage. Um, that was, that was uh, one of honorable mentions. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just love it where it's just showing him doing all the things with the family, but at the same time, you get some elements of the Daniel underneath Mrs. Doubtfire, more clo- more specifically, like, near the end, where the, where the, the the thief tries to take the purse and he just like rips it back. He's like, back off, asshole! Beat it! Yeah, you kind of see him figuring out and adjusting to living as the as Mrs. Dowfire, that double life. 
I love that scene because I feel like that's where the movie peaks. That is where the movie is its happiest. Everything is working for Daniel Hillard, and we're rooting for Daniel Hillard. We want things to work out. He's, you can see he's making good money by doing the housekeeping job. So now as he's seeing his kids, he's getting paid for it. So you can see the differences from where his apartment is a complete disaster early on. And then when the kids come over to visit him and eat dinner, he's cooking, and the apartment looks magnificent, and he's baking, and he's... You know, she asks, oh, I see you got a, a maid. And he's like, no, I'm doing it myself. And so I love to see the, the evolution of the character and how much he changes throughout the film, his arc. Yeah, even then, he you know, he's getting into it as far as he's bettering through helping the kids and being Mrs. Doubtfire. Like you said, he's bettering his own life. Like he's sitting there learning how to cook the, you know, the lobster with the, the family. But he's very much getting used to it. So even so much so, you get a kind of, uh, the, the scene where he's playing the guitar, air guitar on the broom, just a, a cavalcade of awesome Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire moments. Yeah. Like he just carries that entire montage. It's great. Uh, okay, so did you have any other honorable mentions we didn't mention? Uh, a couple real quick. We already talked about it. The climax at the restaurant with the dual dinners uh, where his identity is fully exposed. You have to mention that scene, but we've discussed it. would have been a winner or runner-up if it was better. Hey, no, you see, the thing is, is that I, I – just because it's a climax, you feel like, oh, you go, you have to mention that scene. But I don't feel like I do. I did not have that as an honorable mention. It kind of surprised me because I always remembered that scene fondly as a kid. But when I was watching this here, I was like, it's not one of the better parts of the film. And it's really kind of shocking about yeah, that. And if, it, and if it had been, it would have elevated the film to even higher heights. Don't get me wrong. It's a hit. We love it. It's a good film. Highly replayable. But the ending, like a lot of films, first two acts are great, and just you know, sometimes even good movies, the seams come out a little bit in the third act. Uh, they, they come, they come loose. I did have one honorable mention, and that was the creating of Mrs. Doubtfire. Daniel, hi. Could you make me a woman? Honey, I'm so happy. Oh, come I know you'd understand. That was also my last honorable mention. That montage. Let's pray. The different outfits and the different voices. I hope you are using jungle rape because that is the only color I love. Mm, matches your lips. God bless you. But look at this nice thing that we have here. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. me not to live to sit and putter life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade and it just it's great so i'll add another another montage in the film that's right yeah um all right now moving into our favorite lines from the film i'm sure they're all going to be from robin williams uh so i'll start things off with my runner-up and actually I say that and Robin Williams is in it, but what I liked about it is not something he says. And it's kind of a sneaky one. I don't know if you had it, but it was the scene with the bus driver and it shows he's shown his, his leg after the bus driver's kind of hitting on him and you see, kind of see that the hairiness of the leg and the bus driver doesn't care. He's just like natural, healthy. That's the way God made you. But he broke the mold when he made me dear. He made me very special. It sure did. And I just love yeah. the delivery. It's just kind of, I think it's an underrated 
scene in the movie. It's also good writing because it's not exposition. It it, it shows in a very good way an action or behavior being of him in public where you could see even when he slips up and it shows part of his manhood that it's mistaken for him just being a a woman who doesn't shave. Right, yeah, with crazy leg hair. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. pretty pretty Uh, good writing there. And what was your runner-up? My runner-up is uh, when and we talked about the scene earlier when the kids discover that Mrs. Doubtfire, or they first think is a he or she, they don't know, and then discover it's their dad. But it's the the line when after um, Matthew uh, Lawrence's character uh, Chris Hillard uh, figures out it's his dad, he says, "You don't really like wearing that stuff, do you, Dad?" Well, some of it's comfortable. No, no, it's a pain in the padded ass. <laughs> That's good. I, I like love that. It. Yeah, I, I like that one. Um, and then your winner? My winner is kind of obvious here, maybe a little cliche. Look at this. My first day as a woman, I'm getting hot flashes. Uh, no, I like that one. I had it just an honorable mention, uh, but my winner uh, was actually at the restaurant scene whenever. And it's more like the shot itself, too. It's not just the line, but when uh, Stu was choking Pierce Brosnan's character and yeah. Uh, Miranda sees Mrs. Doubtfire from across the restaurant and shouts to her, and he, he he's like, "Help is on the way, dear." Mrs. Doubtfire, help is on the way. Hurdles over part of the restaurant and sprints <laughs> after. I I think I just kind of love that that line and the sequence to it as well. And again, I think I've you I've used that in real life and. That's part of it too. Is the high that, usage that rate? Bo- yeah, th- that body language, even how he moves and runs and hurdles. There's a little comedic, uh, physical uh, comedy there. Uh, that's very, uh, very subtle yet genius. I always make a joke about like it's kind of like a grandma. Like I, I kind of yeah. uh, made that joke to our mom with my kids. It's like, oh, the boys are hungry. They need something. Help is on the way, dear. <laughs> Just like yeah, grandma yeah. sprinting to help out her grandkids. Uh, all right. So, uh, did you have any honorable mentions? A couple. Uh, honorable mention, and you mentioned the moment earlier, but his response to that burglar trying to grab his purse is uh, after he it, – it's so great because you see it, how quickly he can trigger the voice. He goes from Daniel Hiller to Mrs. Doubtfire, but he, his line – Broke my bag of bastard. Oh. I love that. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Because <laughs> he's trying to get back at the character and kind of make up for it. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, typically that happens when he's had a, had a couple drinks, like at the, by the pool – where he's trying to hit on that girl. He's like, drinks on me, and she's like, oh, no thanks. But he says it in the Daniel Hillard voice. But uh, uh, the only honorable mention I had, uh, and again, several great Robin Williams lines. We're not going to cover them all, but is when he pops up from the cake, and he's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is great. Hello. When he has the face on, yeah, okay. That, that's the classic example of the Robin Williams misses down for a voice that everybody does. Exactly. My last honorable mention was by a character that not played by Robin Williams, Daniel Hillard or Mrs. Doubtfire. It was his brother, Frank, and it was when he, during the montage of the uh, creating a Mrs. Doubtfire, he says, why wasn't I an only child? He he actually has some pretty good lines. He's, he's Yeah, he does. He's got a couple good one-liners. Steals the scene very much so. so uh, yeah, especially yeah, in scene the, stealer. The conversation with the mom, he's like, Oh, he's just kind of depressed right now. He's in denial, you know. Yeah, like, then when she's like, uh, hey, do you want to go stay with mom? And he's like, no. And she's like, he's like, oh, he'll think about it. Like, think- it's just how he plays those <laughs> moments is so good. Uh, it's hard to steal moments from Robin Williams. Yeah, it does. But we've all been, especially at that end of the conversation where somebody says something very direct and brash and you kind of have to interpret it a little bit to soften, it, soften, yeah. soften the blow. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, yeah, a lot of great ones there. But. 
I want to talk about who we would recast in the film if it were made today. Uh, going to be difficult, of course, to you know, to uh, recast the titular character. So let's start a little bit lower down on the call sheet. Let's start with the the three Hiller children. Uh, I kind of would like to look at them as a package deal. So let's just fire them off. I know it's difficult because it's younger actors. So just give me all three. Who did you have for Natalie, Chris, and Lydia? Uh, for Chris, I had Jaden Martell from the It movies. Okay. Um, for Lydia Hillard, I had Mackenzie Foy from Interstellar, most famously, uh, up to this point. I believe she also did a recent iteration for Disney of the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, I actually also had her as my Lydia Hillard. Oh, oh, we matched up. We okay, matched up on nice. that one. Yeah, yeah. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. <laughs> and my Natalie Hillard, very difficult to cast this because I don't know any five-year-old actresses. I'm sorry. Couldn't think of it. The youngest one I could is uh, Julia Butters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She plays an eight-year-old. So that's about as close as I could get. Had to go with her. She's adorable, and I felt oh. like she would steal the scenes. Dang it. That was really good. I wish I would have thought of her. Crap. <laughs> Stupid moron. Ah, I'm such an idiot. No, I, I'm still happy with my choice. Not a five-year-old. You can't just, you're never, it's it's impossible. It's a needle. I mean, more than a needle in a haystack. But I went about the same age. It was um, uh, McKenna Grace, and she played the young Tanya Harding in the recently released I, Tanya movie. And she's, she's done some other things, but I would say that's been her biggest movie role to date. And then for Chris, I had Finn Wolfhard. It was either him or Noah Schnapp from uh, Stranger Things. I kind of was just mm, drawn. Yeah. A, I just had to pull from the Stranger Things uh, cast there. It's an easy one. So, um, so all right. So let's move on to uh, Daniel's brother, Frank Hillard, who we just talked about. Who, who did you have there? Actually, when I thought of this actor, I couldn't get it out of my head. Went with Titus Burgess from the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, man, 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 man. That is really good. I love that. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think of that. I, w- I went with a. He's perfect. He is fucking perfect. Perfect. God, he's perfect. I ended up just pulling from a, a great old staple of an actor that could, of course, crush this role, and that was Nathan Lane. Uh, I think he would yeah, do, yeah. do great he, as well. He, he but crush it. Yeah, he'd be um, perfect. Yeah, I, and I originally thought it was like, well, you know, Titus, he's uh, maybe a little too young considering the family, but the brothers, they could be a different age. It doesn't matter. Yeah, so. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All right, so who was your Stu Dunmeyer? Stu, I went with Chris Pine. Handsome, charming, and a uh, a, a guy that uh, could make uh, any man feel a little insecure. Yeah, I, I'll, <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, I, I, went, I, I was thinking around the same lane there, you know, as far as uh, probably a, someone that is – uh, they're a superhero or some sort of uh, heartthrob actor. There's many to choose from. Uh, yeah. I originally, originally was kind of like, well, you go well, with one of the Chris's. No, I didn't. I originally was like, well, what if we kept it in the James Bond realm and went Daniel Craig? And I was like, nah, he doesn't really fit. And then I nah. thought, I thought, what about John Stamos? And I thought of that. And I was like, Hmm, interesting. But I ended up uh, going with a different John, John Hamm. Yeah. Excellent choice. Can't go wrong with either Chris Pine or John Hamm. John Hamm's a little older, but uh, either one of those guys would work. Yeah, and that, that again, I try not to concern. If it was close enough, I was like, yeah, whatever. But um, all right, so getting into the uh, you know the, the the two leads, the the couple, the uh, start with Miranda Hillard. Uh, I'm very happy with my choice on this one, so I'll kick things off. It kind of stumped me there for a little while, but then once I thought of it, I was like, yes, Amy Adams. 
pretty good. Excellent choice. Uh, she can play anything, though. I feel like she's a chameleon. Uh, plays a wide range of characters, uh, both in film and television. Yeah, but she can just deliver, like, the emotions of the back and forth. And I just, I could see her in every single scene that Sally Field was doing. I could see Amy Adams doing yeah. that. No, it's good. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I went with Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What's wrong with Aniston? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I just, I can't see her as... You know, part, okay, part of it was like you have to – there has to be a little bit of a swept-off-the-feet quality with when Stu comes in, and it's like when she has the cappuccino mustache, you know? So, I, like, if you – like, I, I thought of, like, even Charlize Theron in the role, but then I was like, there's no dude that's going to Too gonna powerful come, of a character. Right, there's no dude that's going to come in here and make her feel that way. And, again, I feel like Jennifer Aniston is – nothing against Sally Field or, or any of the other actresses that – you know, we could go in this. Uh, her Rachel and friends had that element. I could see Rachel getting a cappuccino mustache. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you. She's played that before. That that was just an example. I just feel like yeah. it just, I don't know if he's just the best fit for this role. Okay. But anyway. All right. Agree, agree, to, agree to disagree. Uh, okay. And well, I'm sure we're going to disagree on this next one. <laughs> Daniel Hillard uh, slash Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh man. Such a, such an impossible role to recast. So, uh, yeah, man, only a handful you could think of Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Mike Myers, just a handful of the usual suspects. But I, uh, I went with Eddie Murphy. Really? Eddie yeah. Murphy. Uh, yep. Uh, he's dude. If you think about the, the clumps, nutty professor. Yeah, dude, he, he, he's got more experience in these type of makeup and characters than probably anybody. That's true. Or maybe uh Tyler Perry, of course he could do, does it too. But um, yeah, no, no, I, I like that. Uh, that's, that's pretty good. I, I mean, Eddie Murphy um, definitely has the, too. has the comedic chops and uh, the, the, the drama element to it, the emotion. I, I could I could see him pulling that off. I mean, that would be, be difficult, but I, I, uh, who'd you go with? Well, I did also think of uh, Steve Carell as kind of what I was thinking of. And, and uh, it, I didn't couldn't quite commit to that one. And once I thought of this guy, I was like, yeah, he could do the the voices. And uh, I feel like he could. He was no Robin Williams, of course, in this role. Uh, but I chose Jack Black. I thought of Jack Black as well. I almost went with him. So good choice. Yeah, I mean, no, I like Eddie Murphy. Again, there's there's no replacing Robin Williams. It would be difficult to do. I mean, nearly impossible. But yeah, got to pick somebody. Jack Black is on the short list of actors that could do it that I didn't mention. So good choice. I agree. Uh, one quick fan theory, and it's all—it's more of a joke than anything than, a, than an actual real fan theory. Uh, but um, the fan theory is that that Daniel Hillard is really a stalker of his family, and th- this is a horror movie disguised as a comedy. Uh, and if you think <laughs> it. <laughs> if you think about it in that sense, you know, it does it does kind of ring true. You see everything though from Hillard's perspective. So you relate to him more, but really where it kind of drives close to home is near the end where the judge is like, yeah, you know, you sold this being a 60 year old woman. Well, but your lifestyle and your decisions, any normal person is not going to think that this man is safe enough to be around children innocent. So you, you, you do kind of get that element and, and so much so that someone actually, or a group of people actually 
took clips from Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, put a fake trailer out there as if it were a horror movie. And I, I implore you to get on YouTube and go watch it. Just just type in Mrs. Doubtfire right, horror trailer. It. It's yeah, okay. it's great. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty good. Um was not expecting that. That is uh, one of the more surprising paint theories I've heard. Way to flip the uh, original narrative on its head. I got to keep it fresh. And we'll close out the episode talking about the legacy of Mrs. Doubtfire. This is a film that addresses themes of divorce, separation, and family in a way for uh, kids to deal with it. And that's probably why it was so popular with kids at the time it came out, with families at the time it came out. Uh, Chris Columbus' specialty is this genre, and he knocks it out of the park uh, with Mrs. Doubtfire. And this film is already, as time is age, become more and more appreciated. It's aged like a fine wine. It's, it's beloved more as time has went on. Uh, in 2000, AFI, American Film Institute, in the 100 Years, 100 Laughs, which is the top 100 funniest movies of all time, they ranked Mrs. Doubtfire number 67. That's high praise. A prestigious list to make. And uh, again, it's... A lot of the films that make those type of lists, there's more of a universal or acclaim or it's not quite so mixed. So, uh, But people and critics have come around uh, as time has went on. Uh, a couple of spinoffs uh, here. Uh, there was a canceled sequel uh, in 2001. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire 2 was being developed by Bonnie Hunt the uh, uh, character actress, and there was no follow-up novel by, uh, by the author. Uh, in a lot of movies, and we even talked about with Forrest Gump, there'll be a hit film based on an original novel, and even though there was a gap of time between the movie and the novel, the moment the movie's a hit, what's the author do? They write a sequel. And that's what the writer did with Forrest Gump, ended up being the sequel book, ended up being a piece of shit. And, but this author never did write a sequel to Mrs. Doubtfire, so they were trying to figure out the story, um, it didn't even end up write, starting to write it until 2003. Uh, and then rewrites were in 2006 because Robin Williams was unhappy with it. They scrapped it in 2007. And then Fox revitalized the idea in 2014, but then had to scrap it again once, sadly, Robin Williams passed away. So the, the sequel never really quite got off the ground. And main reason being they just couldn't crack the story. Yeah, like the, the the I guess the front runner story idea which sounds awful when I tell it to you if you I don't know if you read it was that Lydia goes off to college, the oldest daughter, and Mrs. Doubtfire for some reason's got to follow her or kind of keep tabs on her as Mrs. Doubt it just it doesn't make any sense and it wouldn't have worked. It just would have been so I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, that would have leaned a little too much into the stalker dad behavior, uh, stalking his daughter. It's a little too controlling, a little too creepy. Maybe that one could have been an actual horror movie, and there you go. So, uh. Also, uh, didn't do the sequel, but a stage adaptation has been in the works for a few years. 2015, they started working on a musical stage adaptation. Uh, it has been in development. They put it on a creative hiatus a year later in 2016, but earlier this year in 2019, the play is Broadway bound. It is fully uh, casted with actors, and the show will run at the Fifth Avenue Theater uh, November 25th to coincide with the original release date uh, before it makes its way to Broadway. Yeah, and I, I've read that and heard that it, it takes six or seven years from the beginning of a Broadway play idea for it to actually make it to Broadway, um, just through all the iterations that'll go through at one time. Alan Menken was going to do the music, and then that didn't happen. So um, I, I'm glad it is finally happening. I think it'd be a pretty pretty cool show to watch. One thing that I picked up on as I watched it this time, and it's not really an influence, just kind of a cool callback, is 
whenever we watched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently, there was a big push of calling you know, Rick Dalton the heavy in these TV shows. And I'd never heard that term yes. before. The heavy. And I was like, I, what, is, what is that? And that's like, oh, it's the bad guy on a show. And then when I was watching this, there's a conversation between Daniel Miranda early on At in the, the film. At the beginning of the movie, yeah. Yeah, and she's always it's, like, why do you got to... They're fighting after that party, the birthday party. Right, yeah. And, and she says, you've always got to make me out to be the heavy. And I never picked up on that before. And now I was like, holy shit, that was there the whole time. And I never noticed that. I also noticed that and, and had the same moment of realization that you did. I'm glad you pointed it out. This movie hit the zeitgeist bullseye. We talked about it being a blockbuster hit. 258 connections in pop culture and other releases in movies and television. Uh, the movie itself spoofs a couple classic films. Funny Girl, Live a Little, Love a Little, Fiddler on the Roof, some 60s movies, uh, Fiddler on the Roof of 71. Uh, it was spoofed in the Charm television show and Arrested Development. And the movie references Psycho, Mr. Rogers, obviously, uh, some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, and Twilight Zone. Also references Dances with Wolves, and that was more so just a, a, a result of the many improvisations that Robin Williams did. In fact, the studio was so worried about it <laughs> that they were like, he's making so many references, can we get the rights to, to, to have all these mentions in the film? And they actually had to get special permission for the Dances with Wolves one. Uh, so that was just more all those pop culture references. That's Robin Williams' improv. Well, a lot of those are founded in that. Think about the pop culture references in Aladdin. Of course, we covered those in, in the episode there. But, yeah, what he improvised, what we say, like 50-something characters in that film. So uh, can't give Robin Williams enough credit for the work he does in the movie. It's a big reason why it was such a huge success, as we covered why it was the MVP. Uh, the movie is referenced in SNL, Saturday Night Live, which is a pedigree uh, staple of uh, success. That, that, that It's memorable enough to live on in that way. Uh, also with American Dad, a family guy, you know, kind of that Simpsons vein, also the same way. They tend to focus on pop cultural stuff if they uh, make a reference to it or spoof it in their shows. Uh, it was mentioned in Friends and Married with Children, so some pretty big shows as well. And Brian Laurie of Variety summed it up best when he said, quote, Director Chris Columbus shrewdly brings together many of the same selling points as in his Home Alone movies, mixing broad comedy strokes with heavy-handed messages about the magical power of family, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Waldo Pickles Production.